morning and welcome to Providence Medford Grand Rounds for June 2022. Uh, this morning our presentation is SBIRT, What Providers Need to Know. And we have Dr. Barty McLaren and Dr. Natalie Bennett presenting. Dr. Barty McLaren is a psychologist providing integrated behavioral health services at PMG Medford Family Practice. She received her undergraduate degree at the University of Alabama, her master's degree from Southern Oregon University, and doctorate at Auburn University in 2009, where she was part of the multicultural research team. Dr. McLaren completed her internship at UC Riverside Counseling and Psychological Services in a postdoctoral fellowship at Cal State Fullerton Counseling. She has worked in residential psychiatric facilities for teens and adults, adult community mental health, primary care psychology, and private practice in Grants Pass prior to moving uh, to Medford Family Practice in January of this year. Dr. Natalie Bennett is a psychologist and integrated behavioral health provider at Medford Pediatrics. She also serves as the behavioral health pediatrics team lead for the Oregon region. After earning her undergraduate degree at Ohio State University, she received her doctorate at University of Nevada in Reno. She completed internship and residency at UC Davis Children's Hospital in Sacramento. And during her time in grad school, she received training and motivational interviewing from Bill Miller, one of its co-creators, and uses its principles and techniques in her everyday practice. Um, welcome, Drs. McLaren and Bennett. Having some tough technical issues here. Hold on. All right, sorry about that. Good morning, everybody. I'm Dr. McLaren, and we're going to be talking about SBIRT, what providers need to know today. So, on the agenda, um, first, we're going to define SBIRT. Um, we're going to talk about screening measures for adults um, and what that looks like in EPIC, um, screening measures for adolescents. And then we're going to talk about brief intervention um, and, and motivational interviewing. Um, then we'll talk about the quality metric and how to meet that metric and how to document that in EPIC so that we can get credit for that. Um, and then the final piece we'll talk about referral to treatment. So what what is SBIRT? Well, the S stands for screening, uh, which is where we identify patients with unhealthy substance use. That's the the S the S of SBIRT. And then the B and the I is, is brief intervention. Um, it's basically a conversation to motivate patients who screen positive um, to consider healthier decisions such as cutting back, quitting, or seeking further assessment. And then the R and the T is referral to treatment, um, which is where we actively link patients to resources when needed and appropriate.
So um, I'm sure most most providers realize that a lot of patients do come in to, and talk about substance use on their own, and that's um, studies show about one in six patients talk with their doctor, nurse, or other healthcare professional about their drinking where they bring it up. Um, but SBIRT is the opportunity for um, those, those patients that wouldn't probably bring it up, um, but maybe need to. Um, it's the opportunity for, for that, for those patients, so that we can talk about it with them. It, it addresses the full spectrum of substance use. Um, patients may not understand the impact of alcohol and drug use on their health. So there's an educational piece. Or they may not be aware of uh, low risk drinking guidelines um, for men and women. And it also opens up a dialogue um, between the provider and the patient that can improve the patient's overall health. So it's um, from just a healthy behavior perspective. Um, the goals of SBIRT, um, basically at the very top, we, we want to uh, treat and or refer for specialty addiction treatment. These are with the patients who are uh, meeting criteria for a diagnosis of dependence on um, alcohol or or substance use um, and then in the middle there's risky use and this is uh, probably the opportunity to catch maybe the most the most patients who um, before they progress to uh, a, a more severe addiction um, and so use, using a lot of education and hopefully this can decrease the risk of, of further negative health and safety consequences and maybe get them to come back or or quit um, before it becomes a problem. And then the bottom is the low, no risk where there's maybe nothing needing to be done or it could be an opportunity to educate about risks and just reinforce, promote healthy behaviors. Um, so it's a generalizable model. Um, first, again, as I've already said, it, we identify unhealthy behaviors um, and the language of it is, is kind of key. Um, we want to be very non-judgmental, open-ended questions and very goal-oriented in any um, brief interventions we may, we may do with patients. Um, and Natalie's gonna talk more about that when she, um, in the motivational interviewing piece. Um, and again, it, the generalizability is that it extends beyond just substance use. You know, it can include things like medication compliance, diet and exercise, behavioral health, um, trauma could come up as a lot of people are using substances to cope with past with past trauma, PTSD, um, depression, and also it just kind of is a, a holistic picture of healthy behaviors. Adding adding that in there. So now I'm going to talk about the screening that we're doing in Epic and um, from the very brief to the to the full screens that we we do. Um, there's the, the brief annual screen for adults and it's you can it can be found in Epic and I'm going to talk later in the presentation about where to find that. Um, it's given to adults ages 18 and older um, based and it asks um, if they're currently in recovery. Um, 
And also how many times in the past year have they had four or more drinks for women or five or more drinks for male in one sitting? Um, and also how many times in the past year have they used a recreational drug or a prescription for non-medical reasons? Um, and any positive response on this warrant, warrants further assessment and it will populate um, queuing you to go to the next, um, to the full screen for alcohol and or drug and or both depending. So this is the um, full screen for the alcohol we use. It's the audit, the um, alcohol use disorders identification test. Um, and this is, is within Epic, but patients also are given it, can be given it via paper or my chart. Um, again, it's 18 and older when they have the positive, one positive answer on the brief screen. Um, 10 questions assess quality and quantity of alcohol use and consequences. Um, and it includes an extra question about treatment history. Um, the range of possible scores from 0 to 40, where 0 indicates somebody who doesn't drink at all. Um, and then 40 is the top of top score where somebody has a serious addiction going on. Um, and this is used uh, throughout the country. It's a pretty uniform standard measure. So looking at the scores and how that would play out into the interventions that we're going to do. Um, so the at-risk level would be from 7 to 15 for women, um, 8 to 15 for men. Um, and basically that's just going to be a brief intervention, some simple advice. And again, like I said, Natalie's gonna talk further about exactly what that would look like from a very brief motivational interviewing um, technique to something more extensive. Um, and then harmful use is 16 to 19, where you're doing brief intervention and um, extended interventions or, or brief treatment. Um, and then likely dependence 20 to 40, Referral to specialists for assessment and treatment. And this one is the, the, the one for drug screening, um, the DAST, um, the drug screening questionnaire. Um, again, adults 18 and above who are positive on the brief screen for drugs, and it takes about five minutes to complete. Um, 10 questions identify consequences related to recreational drug use. Includes it includes four extra questions about drug type, frequency, injection, and treatment. So it, it gives you a lot of information about um, whatever particular substance the patient may be struggling with. And uh, scoring and interpretation. Um, so one to two would be a low level. You can just monitor, maybe reassess it at a later date. Nothing really needs to to happen. Three to five is moderate. You want to do some further investigation, brief intervention. Um, and then anything six and above, you're going to um, want to refer to treatment if, if that's appropriate and they're open. Um, also doing the motivational interviewing there as well. Okay, and then I'm going to talk briefly just about screening um, with adolescents. And so um, with uh, adolescents between 12 and 17 years of age, we use the CRAFT. 
uh, in EPIC, the craft can be found under the pediatrics tab. Um, the first three questions that are highlighted here in red ask about alcohol, marijuana, or other substance use over the past 12 months. And then all patients are also asked about any risk related to driving under the influence. So if a patient answers yes to any of the first three questions, five additional questions are generated that ask about the context and potential consequences of their substance use. And then once completed, the EPIC form will auto-generate a total score, which informs next steps. So for a score of zero, you can provide some positive reinforcement, maybe like a brief praise statement about safe and healthy decision-making. Um, for a score of one, we're going to want to use brief intervention, um, those motivational interviewing techniques. And then for a score of two or above, um, brief intervention and then potentially a referral to treatment would be warranted. So now we're going to move into discussion about what brief intervention within the context of a primary care visit can look like. And that's motivational interviewing. Um, so motivational interviewing or MI has been shown to be an effective method of brief intervention for substance use. And it can be defined as a patient-centered counseling style that elicits behavior change in order to improve a patient's health. The spirit of MI or the overall approach and attitude can be summarized in these three points here in blue. And that's a compassionate and non-judgmental stance, acceptance and respect for the client's autonomy and collaborative partnership with the patient. And importantly, research has shown that the spirit of MI is as critical and perhaps even more critical than the specific MI techniques that are used. So uh, to take anything away from the presentation, uh, it's really important and crucial just to understand how to adopt a non-judgmental, respectful, and collaborative tone when engaging in MI with a patient. So change is not a concrete process, rather it's a, a fluid process and individuals tend to move through different stages of change in the management of any medical problem, including substance use. It can be helpful to identify which stage of change a patient is in to know where to focus our intervention strategy and how hard to push toward change. So starting up here at the top, a patient in the pre the contemplation stage is not yet considering change. They don't recognize the behavior as a problem. And so our task at this stage is to simply raise awareness of our concern. Once a patient moves into the contemplation stage, they acknowledge that there is a problem and they see the possibility of change, but they, may, they still may remain ambivalent or uncertain about changing. Our task here then is to help the patient resolve this ambivalence and choose change. Once at the preparation stage, the patient is committed to change and is planning for what to do. Our task then becomes to help the patient identify appropriate change strategies. In the action stage, the patient is actively taking steps toward change and is implementing their plan. Their plan may need revision throughout this stage depending on what's working versus not working. But our task here is to help the patient implement their strategies and make a plan to eliminate any potential relapses. When a patient reaches the maintenance stage, it means they have achieved the goals they initially set and now they're working to maintain the change. And the task here is to continue to develop new skills that will aid in maintenance of this new behavior. So ideally, the patient will exit the cycle here and stay in the maintenance stage 
but of course that's not always the case and some patients do move into the relapse stage where they experience a recurrence of symptoms and behaviors. So the task here then becomes to cope with the consequences of the relapse and determine what to do next. Importantly, we can learn something from each relapse to help the next cycle of change potentially be more successful, and we refer to that as an upward spiral. So now I'd like to spend a little time talking about some helpful tips and techniques for implementing MI in the visit. Uh, the most basic skills of MI are captured in the acronym ORS, and these are skills that can help engage the patient, build rapport, and encourage them on their cycle of change. So beginning with O, we want to try and ask open-ended questions when possible, as uh, Barty mentioned earlier. Open-ended questions allow the patient to begin the process of self-examination, and they tend to lead of exploration of issues, uh, whereas closed-ended questions tend to be conversation stoppers. So when we have the time available, uh, we, we always prefer open-ended questions. Affirmations are statements that recognize, highlight, and respond to the patient's strengths and healthy behaviors positively. So affirming your belief that your patient can achieve their goals will help encourage their feelings of hope and confidence. We also wanna be sure to give um, praise and positive reinforcement when there is success in the change plan. Reflective listening is a technique where we repeat back or paraphrase what the patient has said to show that we're listening. And we're gonna take a deeper dive into reflective listening in the next couple of slides. And then finally, summarizing the information that the patient has provided can help us move the visit forward and also provides an opportunity for clarification if that's needed. So reflective listening is a key element of motivational interviewing. Uh, it, demonstrates, it demonstrates whether the provider understands the patient's view accurately, and it also helps the patient to feel understood. So to engage in reflective listening, you wanna listen very carefully to what the patient says and then repeat it back without any judgment or challenge. And importantly, our tone matters when we make reflections. So reflections should be statements and not questions. A statement indicates that we heard the patient and we understand, whereas uh, framing a reflection as a question makes it seem like we don't understand or perhaps we're challenging what the patient has said. So looking at an example, um, let's say the patient says, I started drinking because of the divorce, the way it affected the kids and the mess it left me and financially, it was all more than I could take. An appropriate reflection might sound like, so you started drinking in response to feeling overwhelmed by your divorce and all that happened with it. Reflective listening is also an important technique to use when you hear a patient engage in what we call change talk. So change talk refers to when a patient talks about making a behavioral change in the direction of the desired health goal. So it could be statements like, I really need to quit smoking because I'm setting a bad example for my kids, or I think I'm getting too old for this lifestyle. We wanna make sure that we pay attention to these statements and highlight their importance by reflecting them back to the patient. And we can also strategically provide more, more attention and reflective listening to the patient's change talk than to any sustained talk. So sustained talk refers to statements that the patient makes in the direction of staying the same. 
So for example, if a patient describes ambivalence or uncertainty about changing, we might say something like, I'm interested in hearing more about the part of you that wants to start treatment. So recognizing that informing and advising is still part of the change process, um, MI acknowledges that providers do still need to provide patient education. And the strategy that's recommended for providing this type of information is the ask, tell, ask approach. So you want to ask if you can tell the patient, then tell them, and then ask questions to make sure that the information is understood. So for example, saying something like, is it okay if I share something with you? I'm concerned because the amount you're drinking adds further stress on your heart. What do you think about that? You can also use this approach to share ideas for treatment. So is it okay if I make a suggestion? These are some things that other patients have tried. What do you think? Importantly, the ask, tell, ask approach respects a patient's autonomy and uh, offers our perspective without imposing that perspective on the patient. The MI ruler is another famous technique that can be used to assess the importance of change to the patient. So you can ask the patient, how important would you say it is for you to quit? On a scale of zero to 10, where zero is not at all and 10 is extremely important, where would you say you are? We then ask, why not lower? This helps the patient to verbalize their reasons for quitting and eliciting this type of change talk from the patient rather than us telling them why they should change has been shown to be an important part of the change process in MI. And notably, it's not necessary for patients to be at a 10 for change to occur. Any number above a zero indicates that they're at least in the contemplation stage of change. We can also use the MI ruler technique to assess a patient's confidence or readiness to change by replacing the words how important with how confident are you or how ready are you. Some other tips and tricks for using MI. We want to avoid confrontation as confrontation goes against the spirit of MI. And one technique to do this is to use might questions. So saying something like, is this something you might consider? We also want to avoid labeling the behavior a problem if the patient has not used that language. So instead, we can simply describe the behavior. For example, instead of saying, how long have you had this problem? We can say, how long have you been experiencing blackouts when you drink? And finally, we can use the third person approach to introduce another perspective and ask the patient about their own experience. So for example, saying some people are upset or frustrated when they struggle to quit using. What does it feel like for you? When it's time to make a plan for change, as part of respecting the patient's autonomy, we encourage that the patient develops their own plan for change. So the plan should focus on what the patient can do in the next 90 days, and it should be based on their current state of stage of change. So remember, we don't want to push prematurely for change if the patient's not ready. That means that the plan does not need to include quitting if the patient's not ready yet. So looking at an example, the provider might say, before we finish, tell me what you'd like to accomplish along these lines in the next 90 days. The patient might respond with, I'm sorry, I'm just not ready to quit yet. 
Remembering that we don't need to push prematurely, the provider can say, I'm not talking about quitting yet. What are you ready for now? What do you think you could do in the next 90 days? And perhaps the patient might say, I suppose I could keep thinking about what we talked about. I could talk to my friend Buck who quit last year and see what he did. Of course, many providers worry about how to respond to resistance when having these conversations about substance use. So in MI, we conceptualize resistance as a product of the interaction between the provider and the patient rather than a trait of the patient. So we don't label a patient as resistant. In fact, resistance is often a signal that the provider has assumed that the patient is more ready for change than is actually true. So some tips for working with resistance. First, we wanna do everything we can to avoid building resistance in the first place. So we can affirm for patients that they have freedom of choice and self-direction. We can invite them to consider a different perspective, but we never wanna impose that perspective on them. And we, again, don't wanna push for change prematurely. So we really wanna spend some time evaluating at, at what stage of change the patient is at and then tailor our um, responses appropriately to each of those tasks identified uh, in the stages of change chart. If resistance presents itself during an interaction, then we can do our best to deescalate it. So we can refocus on building rapport with the patient, we can express empathy, and we can do our best to try to understand the situation from the patient's view. So for example, saying, let's back up a second because I'd really like to understand how you see this. So the time available to conduct MI in a primary care setting is you know, typically less than what's available in the counseling setting where um, motivational interviewing was first developed. And so to adjust to the time constraints of primary care, we wanna use MI techniques briefly and repeatedly across visits and shortening them according to the time available. So this slide describes ideas for how to implement very brief to long versions of MI, depending on the time that you have available with the patient. In the briefest version, you can ask the patient the importance of change and their confidence in being able to change. And with just a little more time, we can then use the MI ruler to assess importance, confidence, and readiness. And we can also elicit change talk by asking, why not lower? In a slightly longer appointment, we can add in more reflective listening and more open-ended questions. For example, sounds like there's a lot of stress right now, or how would it feel to succeed? And finally, if we had extra time to work with the patient in its longest version, we can add in lots of summary statements and even review the pros and cons of making a change. In all of these scenarios, it's important to give your opinion as their medical provider, remembering to use the ask, tell, ask approach, but ultimately reiterate to the patient that it's up to them to decide how to proceed. If resistance remains high, you can agree to disagree and see if you can elicit commitment to readdress the issue at their next visit. So patients who are at the visit for another health concern, not substance use, may not be as interested in your motivational interventions. And so in these scenarios, it can be helpful to first ask permission to talk about substance use and your concerns, to acknowledge any other factors that may contribute to their issues, such as 
family discord, trauma history, other concerns. And then finally, to consider harm reduction strategies if the patient is not currently motivated to quit. Again, to respect patient autonomy, we want to make sure that patients feel like they're involved in prioritizing their problems. And then finally, I wanted to quickly touch on Oregon law as it relates to substance use treatment in adolescence. So patients 14 and above can seek substance abuse treatment, excluding methadone without parental consent. Um, providers are expected to involve parents by the end of treatment unless the parent refuses involvement or there's clear clinical indications that um, that would not be in the patient's best interest to involve the parents. And if that's the case, um, those indications should be documented in the treatment record. Um, we also don't have to involve parents by the end of treatment if there's identified sexual abuse or if the minor has been emancipated or separated from the parent for the last uh, 90 days. We can disclose information to a parent or guardian, uh, even if the minor is reluctant to do so, if it is clinically appropriate and in the minor's best interests. Um, if the minor must be admitted to a detox program or if the minor is at risk of committing suicide and requires hospital admission. So in those higher risk situations, um, it, it's helpful to sort of do a risk benefit uh, analysis and to use clinical judgment regarding um, involvement of parent or guardian. So now I'm going to turn it back over to Barty to discuss metric documentation and referral to treatment. All right, um, so I'm going to talk about um, defining the metric, what it actually is, um, how to document it in EPIC, um, and also a, a, an idea for some workflows of how that how that would actually look in the clinic when patients are there uh, for an appointment. Um, so there's two rates reported for the for SBIRT measures. Um, the first one is the percentage of active PCP assigned patients who received age appropriate screening. So that's patients age 12 and older during the 12 month calendar year. Um, so that starts in January and it's done once a year. Um, and then if, if the brief screen is positive, then the full screen must be completed to meet this rate one metric. Um, so that's important to remember. Um, and then the second, the second metric is the percentage of patients who have with with a positive full screen following the brief screening who received a brief intervention, uh, a referral to treatment or both, and that's within 48 hours. Um, documentation of brief intervention and or the referral must be within 48 hours of a positive screen. I just wanted to stipulate that again, just because that's the, it, it won't, um, it doesn't count if we don't do it within that time frame. Um, but um, the Oregon Health Authority has made some allowances for uh, pre-visit screens in my chart um, because patients who are active in my chart will be getting this once a year. Um, and so they may be doing it a day or two before the, the visit. Um, and if, if, 
if that happens, that doesn't count. The 48 hours doesn't start then. Um, it actually it will start at it starts at the actual visit, so you don't have to worry about that. Um, it just has to be documented within 48 hours of the visit. There are some exclusions. So um, these are patients whose screenings wouldn't wouldn't be considered um, being able to count towards the metric. Um, that's if it is completed in the ER or hospital. Um, patients who already have an active diagnosis of alcohol or drug dependency, because um, this is really focused on identifying um, new 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 patients who have substance use issues. Um, Patients currently engaged in treatment, um, patients who have a history of, uh, I mean, have a diagnosis of dementia, um, and also patients with a limited life expectancy or who are in palliative care. So, what this looks like in Epic. Um, you're going to document this in the ambulatory screener tab, um, which. I, you guys can see right here, um, and that's in the same place with the PHQ-9 and the G87. Um, and once you complete the SBIRT annual screen in EPIC, if that's negative, then there's nothing more to do. And that, um, I don't know if you guys can see this clearly, but um, it's just a few questions. And if, if it's negative, then you're done. Um, if the patient declines to answer the brief screen, um, Make sure to select the corresponding tab to denote this, as this also affects the metric. Um, if the screening is positive, then then you're going to complete the appropriate full screen or screens, depending, um, and select appropriate answers that patient endorses in the Epic template. This is just. Um, what it's going to look like when you pull it up in Epic and you'll just be typing in the answers. Right. So um, what is considered a brief intervention? Um, you guys might be curious about that. It, it's, it actually is very brief. It's defined as less than 15 minutes. Um, so there's no CPT code for this duration. Um, it can be documented by checking the box at the end of the audit or the DAST um, within EPIC. And that and then that's one way to document it, um, that you have completed that. So right here it says brief intervention performed. You can check yes or no, depending. Um, and then these are you can these are also ways that you can document exactly what was done. And then referral recommended is at the very bottom here, um, where you could also where you would also could document if they were referred to treatment. Um, while there while we can document it with just those checkboxes, it's also encouraged to document it within the progress note. Um, that way we have it captured in two places. Um, there is a smart phrase already in the system um, and it's epic.espertplan or 70198. Um, 
And this will just auto populate the assessment results from the audit or the DAST, as well as if a brief intervention and a referral was done into your, and so this will just populate into your note. So um, in terms of a workflow, uh, this is actually was taken from Oregon Health Authority, um, one of their uh, ideas of how to do this, and it's pretty much how, how we recommend doing it. Um, first, the brief screen is done. It's um, in primary care setting. It's either paper or electronic form completed in the waiting area with whatever paperwork they have to complete before their appointment um, or via a patient portal online. Um, and then if the full screen is warranted, um, this can be given by the medical assistant, again, with with a paper form or, or in the interview room verbally, um, or also completed electronically in the waiting area or patient portal if that's an option at your clinic. Um, and then the response, um, either the PCP or the BHP, which is, which is us, the psychologists in the clinic, um, would score the full screen in the exam room um, and then do a brief intervention that uh, employs principles of motivational interviewing. Um, and this would just be with the patients who have the unhealthy alcohol or drug use. And then referring to specialized treatments um, or facilitated with patients likely experiencing a substance use disorder and ready to accept treatment. So this is just kind of a little um, breakdown of a workflow to kind of follow. So referral resources, um, we have come up with a PDF document that will will be accessible um, via SharePoint for you guys uh, of regional and state resources for um, referrals. And there's um, quite a few. There's treatment referrals. There's also referrals for more self-help support groups, peer groups, things like that. Um, and so this is something that would be nice to have handy when you guys are wanting to refer someone. You could either just give them the entire document um, or refer specifically to 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 one of the things. Um, and if you do refer to a treatment provider um, or for formal treatment, then that's something to document in Epic um, in the with a referral, an official referral in there, so that that can be facilitated um, and the patient's information can be sent over. So. Um, this is where the behavioral health specialist comes into play. Um, if the patient is not yet ready to seek formal treatment or follow up with any kind of community addiction support services, um, feel free to refer to the BHP for motivational interviewing and harm reduction. And uh, as Dr. Bennett said earlier, um, we have a you know we have more time to focus more heavily on lengthier motivational interviewing um, processes. So this could be something that could be helpful uh, if the patient's open to looking into this. Um, so that would be a good opportunity for a referral there when somebody doesn't, when they're, they're on the radar for having an, a substance use issue, but not, not really open to treatment at this point, but open to at least talking about it, that would be a good referral to us. And this is the um, the list of the community referral resources that I was mentioning that will be um, available on SharePoint for you guys. 
And I think I think that's it. We went a little fast through our slides, but um, I think we have some time for questions and answers now. Yeah, thank you, Dr. McLaren and Dr. Bennett. Uh, a lot of information there. Um, I know I struggle with uh, remembering how to do motivational interviewing, and I think we all need some practice. Um, that one slide was really good. We have some uh, questions uh, because some of our attendees are in Washington State. And do we know anything about the laws in Washington as pertaining to minors and uh, treatment for substance abuse? So I have to preface this with I'm not licensed in Washington, but I did do a quick search to see what the laws look like. Um, and I can send you the link to the fact sheet that I found. But according to Washington law, a minor who is 13 years or older may initiate an evaluation and treatment for outpatient and or inpatient mental health uh, or substance use treatment um, or withdrawal management without parental consent. Um, so the laws are a little bit different up in Washington. I will go ahead and um, share the link to this document. As right, well. Thank you. And um, also. Uh, uh, some people are wondering about referral resources for Clark County, Washington and Portland, so I'm wondering if some of our behavioral health colleagues up north could help us out there. Uh, another question. Uh, could you create a smart phrase that starts with Espert instead of Sosa? A few months from now, I won't remember that I need to type Sosa first, but if I type Espert, hmm. I thought the, the smart phrase that I use is dot Espert plan. Um, is that the one that you all use? So I think um, Dr. Hull's referring to the one that we made for the resources. Oh, the right. So, so yes, we can go ahead and change that so that it's expert first. That's a good suggestion. Mm -hmm. yeah. I was wondering, um, when you see someone and they've screened positive, do you put something on the problem list? A particular diagnosis or what diagnoses might you put on there? Um, I I would put on there depending on the level of use and um, you know level of risk that they're scoring. Um, if it was some it was below like um, I think it definitely if it was in um, dependence area I would definitely put that on there. If it's in a moderate, I might not, but um, once it rises to the level of it's a definitely there, it indicates that they need treatment, then yes, I would put it on there um, as you could do whatever the substance is, alcohol dependence, um, or um, that would be fine, or, or cannabis dependence. Um, that's another one we see a lot. Um, but yeah, I would definitely, especially with the higher higher scores. Thank you. Um, another question, um, and I think you may have covered it, but um, on the uh, rate two, what what is considered a positive full screen? What number? Oh, a positive 
full screen. Let's go back to the, or do you mean a positive brief screen? Oh, I, I know you get the positive brief screen, and then if you get the positive full screen, you're supposed to do something to meet rate two. So I wondered what the number was that triggered that. Let's see. Oh, okay. So um, uh, there it was. I think seven for female and eight for male. Right, then, then that would be the brief intervention. Yep. Okay. Thank you. And any advice for clinics who don't have uh, behavioral health, like my clinic? Well, I mean, I think you guys can do can still do a lot of the, the motivational interviewing piece, but it just has to be super brief. Um, so using that within within your visit. Um, however, if you are if you do um, have have patients who are who are super ambivalent, um, uh, but but open to talking about it, um, you know, we could you could do a cross clinic referral for that. Um, but and, and that's just that group that's going to really benefit from some more in-depth motivational interviewing and they're open to that. Thanks. Yeah, and I, I think um, speaking for me and I think speaking for some of our other BHPs as well, um, if you have questions about implementing motivational interviewing, like if you tried it with a patient and it didn't work well and you're wondering what can you do differently, um, please feel free to reach out, send me an email or a Teams chat. I'm happy to provide some um, consultation on that to help. Okay. See, we'll give it another couple of minutes to see if we get any more questions. Oh, there's a, do you have a 10 minute education <laughs> with motivational interviewing for trauma surgeons? <laughs> um, screen all required to screen all critically injured for alcohol and drug abuse uh, and provide intervention. Interesting. As an Oregon designated trauma center, we're required by Oregon rules to screen all critically injured for alcohol and drug abuse, additionally a positive provide intervention. We do well, the initial nurse screening about 91%, uh, 80, we're about 80% with surgeon brief intervention in-house and solid but no data for follow-up. Wow, I did not know that. Um, so in terms of keeping it to, to 10 minutes, what you're describing, um, in, with regard to the patient education piece, that's always falling back on the ask, tell, ask approach. So asking, you know, can I share some concerns with you or can I, can I bring this up um, if there's a positive screen um, and then sharing what those concerns are, providing that patient education um, and then falling back on to those, um, the, the briefest form of those brief forms of motivational interviewing, which is just asking how important it is for the patient to make a change um, and if they're ready or confident to do that. And then remembering that the plan for change can, for the patient doesn't need to include treatment, it could just include thinking about it. So, so again, you know, it doesn't need to be 
um, a super in-depth discussion if they're not ready yet. So just sort of saying, is this something that you might think about over the next 90 days? Thanks. Well, we'll give it about another minute or so. Um, I think I saw a question from Heather about um, making sure to have some Clark County Washington referral resources. Um, so I think um, what we can do is reach out to the BHPs who work up in that area who probably already have some of those resources and compile a document and get that sent out. All right, well. Looks like we don't have any other questions. Thanks everyone for attending. Uh, we won't have grand rounds for July or August. We'll be back in September with an infectious disease topic. And if people have uh, topics they would like us to think about in the future, feel free to suggest them to us. Um, thanks Dr. McLaren and Dr. Bennett. Um, all the uh, effort you put into this and we'll see you all later thank you